Okay, well, we are going to come to the end of Genesis. And you're like going, it's about time. We have been trudging through the book of Genesis. And we started in the book of Genesis with the creation, right? What a wonderful thing to meet our creator God and all that he did. And, and he was there and he walked in the goodness of, uh, of his, his grace in the garden with Adam and Eve. But then what happened? Sin. Sin entered the world and with sin came death. Death came. And we're going to end Genesis with two deaths. The death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. And as we look at this today, uh, we're going to see a, a couple things that I think are, are things that we can absolutely embrace. And one of those things is we're going to see the blessing that Jacob gives to his family. Um, you know, uh, let, me, let me change the thought here for just a second. Some of you ask about the form that I created for Albany Police Department for all of your uh, personal information. We were able to get that and we've created that form for Eastside. So if you would like a copy, there's hard copies out here on guest services. Uh, if you would like a digital copy, all you've got to do is email or call the office and we will get you a digital copy of that. Uh, because we've had a number of people that have, that have said, hey, I would really like that. That would help me leave something for my family to know what I want when I die. And so uh, those are out there uh, and avail yourself to those. But uh, as we get to these deaths, uh, Jacob is going to bless uh, all 12 of his sons. And he's going to bless two of his grandsons. And I have had the honor of being part of this. My father, before he died, called in each one of us children, and our children, and our children's children, all the way down to the greats. And he gave a blessing over every one of us. And I can tell you it was one of the most powerful things I've ever been involved in. Because when somebody comes to the end of their life and they know that in a not too distant future, sometimes in a matter of hours, that they're going to be in heaven. And the last thing they do on this earth is to make sure, A, they pass on the blessing of the faith that they've had, all of their, uh, the faith they've had in their life upon all of their descendants. And a final request that if you don't know Jesus, you need to do it now because I want to see you in heaven one day. It's powerful. And we're going to see that here in Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. And let's look at what it has to say for us. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons 
Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and he sat up in bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of people, and you will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that you have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padaram, Rachel died to my sorrow. In the land of Canaan on the journey, when we were still some distance to go to Aftra, and I buried her there on the way to Aftra, which is Bethlehem. The couple things I want you to see about this time with Jacob. The first is Jacob claimed the promises of the covenant. The covenant that was first given all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. And that promise was, was several things, one of which was a people and a land. Now where is he saying this? He's in Egypt. He's not in the promised land. He's in Egypt. But he's looking forward to the promise. Because a promise does what? A promise is something that is ahead of us. It's not behind us. It's something that is to come. And though he's realized a little bit of it, if you look back in the last chapter or so, it says, while they were in Goshen, that they multiplied exceedingly. But he hasn't experienced the full promise. They aren't in the land. And this is in Genesis 35. He's, he's claiming this promise that God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you and kings will come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Now it's kind of hard sometimes to claim a promise when you're not where the promise is going to happen. He was in Egypt. Egypt was not the promised land. But looking forward, he claims the promise that God gave. That one day his descendants will be in the land. And he, got, and he will never see that, but his descendants will. And then he does another thing. He claims Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. Now, understand that all the other, the other 11 brothers, they all had families, and where were they born? They were born in Canaan. 
They were born in the promised land. All of them had children. They're all well into, into the middle age. I mean, he is, he's an old man now. And they're all, they've all had children, but they were born in the promised land, except for Joseph's. Because how old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17. He never had a wife when he was in Canaan, when he was in the promised land. He went down to Egypt. He spent some time as a servant to Potiphar, thrown in jail, accused un, un, uh, without any merit. And then at age 30, he becomes the vice president or whatever you want to call him, just under Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian wife, correct? Matter of fact, she was a wife of a priest of Egypt. Or a, a daughter of the priest of Egypt was his wife. And they had two sons. Those two sons were raised in an Egyptian household. They were in Pharaoh's palace. They probably didn't even speak Hebrew or whatever language the Israelites were speaking at the time. They would have spoke Egyptian. And as they grew up in Egypt, they were in Pharaoh's household far away from where all the Israelites were being raised, where Jacob was in the land of Goshen. Matter of fact, he probably had only seen him a few times in his life. And as the time comes for him to die, Jacob brings the two boys back. And so that they wouldn't be left out in the cold, because it would be pretty easy for all the cousins to say, we don't know you. Who are, you don't even speak our language. It would have been very easy for, for all of the aunts and uncles and the cousins to say, what part do you have with us? You were raised in Egypt. And Jacob was going to make sure that that didn't happen. And so he, he claimed what was something that happened on a regular basis. He claimed the two boys as his own. He said, you are going to be as if you were my sons. And he takes them as his own. This is not something that is uncommon. So let's look at, at Genesis. Let's look at the next. And we're going to, we will, uh, I'm going to paraphrase a bit of this first. Uh, verses 8 to 22. Joseph brings his two sons. Now Manasseh was the older and Ephraim was the younger. And it says that, that Israel, that Jacob, his eyesight was bad. Anybody relate to that as you get older, right? Is, is, you ever do this thing? Right? Honestly, how can I, right? His eyesight was bad. And as he comes, J Joseph brings Manasseh and he puts him at Jacob's right hand. Because the right hand is where the blessing comes from. Anybody know what Benjamin means? Benjamin, son of my right hand. 
That's a literal translation of Benjamin, son of my right hand. That was the hand of blessing. And that should have gone to Manasseh, and he brings Ephraim to his left hand. And then Jacob does something very interesting. Jacob reaches up and he does this. He crosses his hands. And that brings us, look at verse 15. Let's look at 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim and on who was the younger, and he laid his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, though Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac, that they may grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And as we follow, we see Joseph going, Dad, Dad, don't do this. No, you're wrong. But Jacob had had a message from God. Jacob had heard God tell him, no, the younger shall serve the older. Have we ever seen that before? Ishmael the firstborn? No, you went around it the wrong way, Abraham. Isaac is going to be the one who's blessed. Jacob and Esau? Esau was the firstborn. God says, nope, the, the younger's gonna, the older will serve the younger. It's going to come through Jacob. And now we have Jacob doing the same thing. And look at verse 20 to 22. And he blessed them that day saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I, look, I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. He's looking to the future. He said, God will bring you back to the land. Now, how long is that going to take? Well, they're, they're there in Egypt for 400 years. These boys will not see the promised land, but their descendants will. He's looking to the future, to the God of the future. And he says, I want you to understand what God is going to do. And sometimes God does things we don't understand. Why? Why? Are you passing me over, Manasseh would say. Ephraim might say, I don't want this. Have you ever, you ever gotten that? Have you ever, somebody come to you and say, uh, you need to step up and, and take this position. Right? And you're like going, mm-mm. I, I don't want that. I had the, I had the, uh, the pleasure, shall we say, of being the chief of police for the Albany Police Department for one week. For one week. We had uh, 
our, our chief had resigned, and usually it would go to the deputy chief, and uh, the deputy chief decided he didn't want it. Matter of fact, he asked to be, to ask the mayor of uh, the city manager of Albany to uh, demote him back to officer rank, and I was the highest ranking captain at the time. And the city manager came, came to visit me at my house, which is a little, little disconcerting. And he says, uh, so I got some news for you. He says, not only are you going to be captain of your division, but you're going to be both deputy chief and chief until I can find a, an interim chief to come in. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Can I pass on this? And he said, no, you cannot. We've already had that happen once today. So, uh, but anyway, sometimes we don't want what we perceive that's given to us. And Ephraim very well could have been like that. Can you imagine all of a sudden you're, you're kind of sitting back there as the, as the second place brother and you're, you're hanging tight with that, you're okay. And all of a sudden he says, nope, you're the one that's going to be in charge. Whoa. But they took that on. And God was going to use that uh, in, in the, the tribes of Israel. And you'll see, uh, if we, we're, we're not going to be in Exodus next. You, can, you, you don't have to worry about that. But if you went on into Exodus, you would see that uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to get uh, property in the promised land eventually. Well, let's go on to the rest of the blessing. In chapter 49, he's going to bless uh, the other, bless all of the boys, all of the, the 12. And I want us to look at this because it, it gets kind of interesting in what, God, what happens in this. Then Jacob come, summoned his sons and he said, Assemble yourself that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And then, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because of their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Wow, the first two sons, the firstborn, the firstborn is rejected because he sinned. So who does it go to next? Well, it would go to the next one, Simeon, right? And after him, Levi. But what did they do? When their sister had been raped by Shechem, they went in 
and killed all the men in the village. And he said, you're bypassed also. It's going to go to Judah, the next one in line. You are forgiven of the penalty of your sin. Not necessarily the consequences of your sin. Think about that for a second. The penalty of your sin is taken care of, isn't it? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the penalty of your sin. The wages of sin is death. But he doesn't necessarily die for the consequences of your sin. And each of these men were passed over because of the consequences of their sin. That's kind of a hard one to take, isn't it? Been many, many years. But they still were responsible for their sin, the consequences of their sin, and they were passed over by their father. We, we need to really, when we think about, uh, we live in, a, in an age of cheap, what I call cheap grace. Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So I, I might as well just go out and sin because I know God's going to pay for it. It's already paid for on the cross, and, and the, but the consequences of your sin are not. And I see a lot of people say, well, 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 we're under grace. Grace will take care of it doesn't take care of the consequences. It only takes care of the penalty. Think, think, think before you make that decision. Wow, this is a temptation. Because God says, yes, I will forgive your sin. But at the same time, every time that he forgave sin, you know what he ended up with? When the woman came to him that was caught in adultery... And they threw her in the middle of the circle. And he looked at all the men and he said, he who was out sin cast the first stone and they all went away, right? And when everybody was gone, Jesus looked at her and he said, who condemns you? And he says, nobody. Neither do I. But then he finished it with what? Go and sin no more. Change. We don't like to hear that, do we? We don't like to hear, you need to change your lifestyle. You need to change what you're doing. You need to run away from sin. Well, they were held responsible for the consequences of their sin. Now we're going to come to the next person that he blesses, and that's Judah. And I want you to follow this because, because in this passage, he is going to claim the name of Jesus in several different forms. He is looking not only at Judah, but he's looking where? Where's the promise? It's in the future. Who's coming? Jesus is coming. Now I want you to watch as he blesses Judah. Starting in verse 8, he says, Judah... Your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to rouse him? The scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's shaft, staff from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes, to him shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal to a vine, and his donkey's colt to a choice vine, and he washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are dull with wine, and his teeth white from milk. Did you catch any of the references to Jesus in there? A few, right? The first he calls him, he is the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so to open the book and its seven seals. And who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus is going to open up the book. He calls him the king. Revelation 17, 15. And these will wage war against the lamb. The lamb will overcome them because he is who? Lord of Lord and king of kings and those who are with him shall be called chosen and faithful and who are those that are chosen and faithful we are amen he calls him shiloh now this is the only reference to shiloh that does not reference the city of shiloh and most theologians believe that he is talking about the messiah the Messiah, the one that is to come. Matthew 1.1 says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's in the line that will bring us the Savior. And then he calls him the conquering king. And you see the, the, the robe that is, that is covered in the, from grapes of the winepress. I want you to watch Revelation 19. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule with them a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? All right, have you taken your riding lessons lately? We're going to be riding white horses, folks. And as he mentions through each one of these, where is he looking? He's looking forward. He's looking to the promise, the promise that is going to come through the line of Judah into, into a young lady by the name of Mary who's going to have a son and he's going to come as a little baby. But you know what? When he comes back the second time, he's not coming as a meek child that's laid in a manger lying in a stable He's coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming back as the Lion of Judah. He's coming back as the Messiah. He is coming back as God Almighty. Amen? And as he looks through Judah, he is looking far past to what will come. Well, in verse 40, in chapter 49, in 13 to 21, 
He talks about several of the other sons. He talks about Zebulun and Iskar and Dan and Gad and Asher and Naphtali. And almost all of those are little one or two line descriptions. And he just says, basically he talks about either where they're going to be or he talks about what role they will play in the 12 tribes of Israel when they get in the land. And we're not going to go through each one. It would take us quite a while to to look at what each one of those descriptions are. But I also want you to understand that these that he names, the, the six that he names, make up the largest part of the tribes of Israel that are going to rebel in the future. So he gives them those, uh, gives them their blessing. Now I want you to come to the blessing of Joseph because once again he comes back to Joseph. Now Joseph was the son he lost, the son of the woman he loved. Remember he mentioned Rachel, the one that I love that died on the way to Bethlehem. It's, it's the son that, that he had, had lost and regained. And, and we look at 22 to 26. And Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. Archers bitterly, bitterly attack him shoot at him and harass him. But his bow remained firm and his arms agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from God our Father who helps you, by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, Blessing of the breasts and of the womb. Blessings of your father have passed the blessings of my ancestor up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May be the head of Joseph on the crown of the head of the one who distinguished among his brothers. Do you think when he was saying these words, he was thinking back to the time when the 17-year-old boy came up and he said, Dad, I had a dream. And in that dream, all y'all, that, that is a word. The whole family, you and mom and dad and the boys are all going to bow down to me. And it came to pass, didn't it? It came to pass. But I want you to, did you catch the phrases that he gave to Joseph that talk about Jesus? Did you catch those? He calls him the mighty one, the almighty. In Genesis 35, 11, God said to him, he's talking about Jacob, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. He talks about the almighty Jesus that is to come. He called him the shepherd. And of course, most of us go to which verse? Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down beside the green... Uh, beside, 
in the green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Right? We see this beautiful shepherd in this pastoral scene, but I want you to look at Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's looking forward. He's looking forward to that day when the shepherd will be the chief shepherd in heaven. He called him the stone of Israel. Psalms 118.22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Everything that we know is built on the fact that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We see him looking forward as he looks into heaven. Then he finishes with Benjamin, verse 37. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the praise, and in the evening he divides the spoil. We come to the end of chapter 49. And it tells us, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone, the blessing appropriate to him. And then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which was before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. And there they buried Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And there they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. And Jacob finished charging his sons and he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Wow. What a way to go. If you're going to die, let me die at home. With my family around me, my 12 sons, my grandsons, my grandkids, the greats gathered around. When my grandmother died, she had been, uh, she had had a gallstone rupture causing peritonitis, and she had been in the hospital for a few days, and the doctors finally came to us and said, she's not going to live. And so they said, now's the time. And they allowed us to take all the tubes out that was keeping her alive. And, and the amazing thing was, is they said, you'll probably have a few minutes. And so we, we gathered in a room. Well, a few minutes became... 15 and then 30 and we noticed that when we would sing to her that her blood pressure would drop and her face would ease and so we began to sing taking shifts and after a couple hours we began to watch her her 
vitals start to drop down. And we, as a family, they said we, it was about 11 o'clock at night. There was only a few people in the ICU. And so the staff was, was allowed us to all be in there together. All of, all of us kids gathered around her bed. And as we sang, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. We watched as she slipped into heaven. What an amazing thing to do to be with your loved one when they pass from here to eternity. Amen? And here's Jacob at the end of his life with his family gathered around him. And I think it's one of those unusual things that too often in this world we fight so hard to keep people alive with tubes and medicines when we should be standing around them at their home. I think that's too uncommon these days. Because God has a way. He knows when your time is and he will take you home whether you're laying in a hospital bed or you're at home. Well, in Genesis chapter 50, we're going to see one of the most amazing funerals that we'll ever see. A processional that's going to go from the land of Goshen and it's going to wind up in the land of Canaan at Abraham's tomb. And it's amazing. I've been involved in a number of different police funerals, and I've been in processions that have been miles and miles long. When Joseph Horoff died, his procession started at Hope Church, and when the first car got to Lebanon Cemetery, the last car left, the hosp- or left uh, Hope Church. But this one is going to extend all the way from Egypt, all the way up, and I want you to look at... Uh, Verses 7 to 9, look who all went on this this processional. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers and his father's household. And they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, and they went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And it says when they got up to, to the, the valley just before uh, they got to the burial place, it says they stopped and they mourned for seven days. And the people came from Canaan and they said, isn't this a grievous mourning for all the Egyptians? You see, he was loved not only by his family, but he was loved by those people in Egypt. They had given him a son that saved the world. Makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? Well, after the procession is over, there's a little thing that happens. Family can be amazing things in different ways. When somebody dies, I want you to look at Genesis chapter uh, 50. And I want you to look at 15 to 21. And Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, and he said, 
What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And the brothers came and they fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for who am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Sometimes it's harder to forgive yourself than to accept the forgiveness of others. You see, Joseph forgave them a long time ago. When they came to the, to the land, when they came to him for food, that would have been the time. He could have said, for what you've done, I'm going to throw you in prison. You'll never see the light of day. But Joseph forgave them. Why? Because of God's working in his life. But did they ever forgive themselves? They carried that guilt with them to the day that their father died and then they thought, we're done. We're done for. He's going to kill us. But notice that it said, what did Joseph do? He wept. He says, you guys don't get it. You've been forgiven all of these years and you've lived with this guilt. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. But Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And we keep wanting to put that bloody garment back on. But it's white. When we get to heaven, how are we going to come? What did Revelation tell us? We're going to come in a white robe on a white horse. We're going to be perfectly clean. And, and as Jesus has forgiven us, who are we to take that back on ourselves? Learn to forgive yourself. Well, we're going to end with Joseph. Look at verses 20 through 22 to 26. And Joseph stayed in Egypt, and he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's son, the sons of Machir and the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you from the land from this land to the land which he promised on an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made his sons of Israel swear, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. And so Joseph died at the age of 110, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt.
Joseph's faith was in what God was going to do, not what he had done. At the end of Joseph's life, he didn't brag on the fact that he had literally saved the world through what he did during the famine. He didn't brag that he was the second in command of all of Egypt. He didn't brag that he lived in Pharaoh's house. What he said is, look guys, this is it's not about what's right here. It's about what is coming. What God is going to do. And I think we need to be that way. You know, we can look around us and we can say, COVID's a terrible thing and it's killing people and you're absolutely right. We can look around you and say, oh, the economy's in the tank and, 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 and things are terrible. We could look around and we could say, look at all these things, but the reality is, is that we need to be looking ahead. We need to be looking to the promise. And what is that promise? What's the promise? That Jesus is going to come. On the night that, that he, he was betrayed, he, he had the Last Supper, right? And during that Last Supper, he, he gave, in the book of John, he told us a number of things. He talked to his disciples, and when he was talking to them, he was talking to us, and he says, he says I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you to where I'm going to be. In my Father's house are many mansions. Amen? We need to be looking, looking to the future, looking to what has been promised. Jesus said when he went up in the cloud, his angels said, why do you stand around looking, at, 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 looking up in the air? And he's just like he went up, he's going to come down one day. Are you living in expectation of the day the trumpet's going to sound and the sky's going to split open and we're going to be gone? Are you looking to the day when, when Jesus is going to say, you know what, that number that I wrote down when you were born, that number that was the number of your days is complete. You get to come home. You get to come home. This world's not my home. It wasn't Jesus' home, even though he made it. His home is in heaven with us forever and ever. 